From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week, have been doing it via Zoom since March. We have the whole crew here recording Tuesday afternoon with Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. We're going to roll into a coronavirus conversation here in the first quarter. We've been doing that since the thing hit back in the spring. Important context for our lives and the sports world. Also, lots of good modeling questions. Um, in the show, we're going to end the show in a little bit longer fashion, longer interview than usual. Our fourth quarter interview turned into a third and fourth quarter interview with Eric Eager on all things football analytics. So if you're at all up for football analytics, you got a good conversation here at the end. Open quarter here in the second quarter talking about all, all other sports. So guys, coronavirus, we are um, into the craziness of getting this vaccine rolled out. We are still in the craziness of more infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. We are in the middle of the holiday gatherings. We are still kind of feeling the repercussions of Thanksgiving gatherings. There's a lot to think about, a lot to discuss. I'm curious in the world of coronavirus, what has caught your eye? Adi. Well, I think we, we need to just expand upon the conversation we had last week, which is the vaccine rollout, which at this point is veering to national disaster. Well, um, let's talk, have, so let's get some two stats. 11 million doses, 11 and a half million doses have been distributed. Distributed. Something like 2 million have been administered. Yep. 2.1 million the last time I That's I right. Okay, so and, this is uh, what you're calling a national disaster, all right? Go yeah, ahead. because there's, now I've heard actual stories which are nightmares. Like, for example, they're defrosting or thawing too much and then and, and, uh, having to essentially give them out free, as a free-for-all. Um, but mostly it has to do with the, the pace at which we are administering. There's nothing that could be more important than giving these vaccines as fast as possible. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And well, I know we're state-based, and I know that the, there's federal-state partnership, but there's just no way to argue we're doing a good job at the most important thing that we need to do right now. Mm-hmm. And to have about a half a percent of the population vaccinated, to still be working our way through healthcare workers two weeks in is, is terrifying. And I'm, I'm going to just update, for example, and last week I talked about Israel. Turns out Israel is getting very, very high marks. So it's not necessarily fair to, to, to you might want to look at an average case. But they are already down. They finished 60 and above. And they're now going on to what they consider the next phase. And you want to make a guess who that is? It's teachers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Teachers under 60 is their next group. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And the way they set it up, and there's an actual an analogy I'd like to almost give. There's some research like how to, what's the fastest way to load a plane? And it turns out the fastest way to load a plane is just send everyone kind of randomly. Um, and there's some interesting research. And the way you shouldn't kind of try to do it. Mr. Uh, you, Southwest Airlines needs to hire you or, uh, you well, know, I, I have a you board whatever you research. want and you grab whatever seat is free. And it turns out that's very fast. And so one of the things that Israel has done is said there's two ways to get the virus. You either make an appointment or you show up in these arenas. <laughs> and you could wait a long time if you're in an arena because you don't have an appointment. Um, and you might not even get it when that, that day you arrive. So it's great. And you, you show up with an appointment, you get it exactly on time. It's terrific. But it turns out you move much faster when you kind of let people 
Sounds like a pretty good system conditional on me getting it. This part where I show up to an arena full of people and then potentially don't get it at the end of the day doesn't sound all that healthy to me. But well, you know, I'm not there. So, uh, (laughs) but but the people who have reported on it and they have said that it's been terrific. So one of the features of that, by the way, this is a country that's had three lockdowns, so it's not exactly a a success story in terms of the coronavirus. Well, well, but we're interested in models. Like, what are the different models of distribution? So whether or not we're reifying Israel or not, Mm -hmm. we can at least talk about the model. And one of the things that jumps out to me about that model is that it's more demand-driven than Mm supply-driven. Right now, I I feel like we're sitting around in the United States with everyone waiting to be called by their doctor and told that they have a shot waiting for them, which is wildly inefficient, not least because the doctors and and the health professionals don't themselves understand the system because there is no system, but it's not driven by demand. People demand. can't just go, go up. Even if you qualify, you can't just go get it. Eric. It's a different scale. I, I, I mean, of course, I'll just point out again, it is an entirely different scale of operations in the United States. You know, no, I, again, I, just, I don't want to. I'm not. I'm not reifying Israel in any way. I'm just pointing. No, no, out no, no. But I think I, I. I just want to remind us about that because I think some of these kind of practices. I, I'm just kind of curious. Like, would they scale? Do would they scale? Like, you know, but, but can we, have we states, take the techniques? States can scale it. California has 40 million people. They've administered 70,000 vaccines. Yeah. Israel has mm-hmm. six million people, and they've administered 350,000 vaccines. I mean, this. It feels like it's just. It's. It's letting. The, the the fiction of precision get in the way of just getting shots in arms. I mean, we're, 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 I think we're worrying way too much about the queue. Just give the shots at this point. It's absurd that we're waiting weeks for millions of people, uh, millions of weeks wait, millions of shot weeks delayed because mm-hmm. of some pursuit of, uh, pursuit of precision. No, I was going to comment on Adi's, uh, you know, issue about the distribution, which I agree with. You know, we study, I mean, it's one of the four P's of marketing placement. We call it, you know, it's distribution. We study this. And actually the big mistake, you know, it's easy to say now, but the big mistake that's being made is actually too many distribution points. And so they would have been a lot better by setting up an excellent supply chain to, I'm making up a number, a thousand distribution centers, maybe 15 mm-hmm. in each state, although you could do a proportional to the population. I don't need 15 or 20 in Rhode Island and 15 or 20 in California. Make sure you have excellent distribution to there. Make sure you have enough staff there. If you have to do it in arenas, you do it in arenas. But right now, it's kind of like there's bad distribution to that last mile or two just everywhere. And, you know, it, it's just this idea of do you want excellent distribution to a thousand sites or mediocre distribution to 10,000 sites? So hold on. So hold on. Hold on. I, we, do we know where the actual delays are? My sense being down here, and it may be different across states, but my sense down here is that it's not a failure of distribution to the outlets. It's a failure from the outlets to the people. And so I don't, and I don't know why there's such a friction there, but I think that that would argue just the opposite directions. Like I want well, to get a it centralized. To- no, no. But see, what happens is, is like a state will get a certain amount. It'll be distributed to, I don't know, some location in the state. And then it has to be distributed possibly to 100, 200, 500, 1,000 different. That, that's not the problem. That, but that's not the problem. That's, I agree. Problem it's not been, the problem. It's the, the doses are sitting in the hospitals and not getting to the arms. And, ph- and pharmacies. And pharmacies. There are, there are 370, 400 locations in Texas with this stuff. Some with as little as 100 doses, some with a couple of thousand. So the challenge is that there are not enough nurses or people to actually No, it? no. It's the, it's the, the challenge is that everyone's 
stalling over the order and the priority yeah. system. And that's yeah. why I gave the analogy yeah. to the letting, loading the planes, the people on the planes is we're yeah. worrying about, yeah. is it, are you in tier one? Are you in tier one? A, are you, is it, you have small children? I mean, all these layers is, yep. is making an absolute muck out oh, of getting it in the arms. Actually, no, you use the word call from your doctor. I, I've not heard that. Does anybody know actually how it, any person, like say one of the four of us, how we're actually find out when exactly. it's our Never. We, nobody exactly. knows. No one's going to call you and tell you. You have to just, you have to, you, right now, here's what you would do in Texas. You call your doc and try to get a prescription. And if you if you qualify according to where we are in the tiers right now, they will probably write you a prescription. If you don't qualify, but you're in the next tier and they have some extra laying around, they might write you a prescription. But it, just as with so many things in our healthcare system, it depends on advocating for yourself. It takes a lot of initiative and a lot of advocacy. It helps to have a lot of information. It helps to have connections. I mean, those are the things that are driving it right now, which is craziness when we're facing a pandemic with all the externalities that it has. The, the basic point that I'm making is that once those vaccines are sitting in the, in the location, the final distribution center, and if you have the personnel, which they do to distribute them, they should be gone as fast as you yes. can serve them. You should be pulling people off the streets. Open and, the and door and wave them in off now, the streets. Now, I'm noticing, I've just read about this, and it's something I just read about yesterday. Both Ohio and Florida are deciding that that's what they're going to try to do. And so they've opened up essentially drop-in vaccine, and they have an age requirement, which is by far the most efficient way to pull this off, because there is no risk factor that comes close in terms of predicting your, your, your probabilities right. of okay. this air. This is a really so good point. All they're doing is we'll take the most obvious thing that cannot be faked or bought right. or, right. or, you know, right. bartered and just say, that's it. And so in Florida right now, if you're 75 or over, you can just show up and get the vaccine. Now, Love I don't it. know that whether, whether it's how well it's working, um, but in Ohio, I heard that is, is, is starting that process too, because right. they just can't have this, everybody looking at each other about who goes next. Right, right. That's a really good way to put it. Also, simplicity. Simplicity helps, it turns out, especially when you're trying to do such a complicated thing. Wow. All right. Now, well, just, I'll just add in, is so, what I New mean, York is doing is insane, by the way, because New York, which is a population that probably has 40% exposure already, which is, which is one of the reasons why it's, it, it, it was hit horribly before. And it's been sort of slow bubbling because so much of the population has been exposed. They are sitting on loads of vaccines and just doing nothing with it as they decide which zip code gets how many. Yeah, it's been all right. all over the newspaper. Right. You know that, that you just mentioned two things that, that I, I want to jump that I want to jump on. One is um, this issue of where you live. I mean, it feels like it's a national in a national crisis like this. A good measure of whether we're managing it well is how different the outcomes are as a function of random exogenous things like where you live. And mm -hmm. we're going to end up, after the fact, it's going to be known that some people, because they were living in one state, got it later and died than if the same people had been, same people, same demographics in a different state. And there's a, there's a fundamental unfairness there. Now, look, life is unfair. I get it. But this is, this is not nature. This is, a, this is a governmental response to a unusual situation and we're, we're going to have these wildly disparate outcomes just by a product of where you end up living. I, I do want to, uh, another article I read relates to the monoclonal antibody treatment that was developed quite some time ago and approved for emergency distribution. The tragic article that I read in the Times talks about how they have enormous numbers of doses of it and nobody's getting it. It seems... Right? 
it, and the reason they, why this, is they, the thing, everyone, this was a big thing. Like if you got it, yep. then you could donate. And mm-hmm. so people were donating. And so, th- and there was some question about the efficacy, but now it turns out to be, and you're saying, well, well there's you, a, there's a couple reasons what they talked about why no one's getting it. One is doctors are not that willing to prescribe it. And one of the reasons why they're not that willing to prescribe it is that they don't feel there's enough evidence to warrant. Yeah. Um, and although it has no downside, so I don't understand why, why you don't prescribe something that has no downside. But in this, to me, is actually brings up what I consider to be a colossal failure of data analysis. Because the study, um, this is, would be the Eli Lilly study, and there's another one for Regeneron. They gave the, 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 the measure that they looked at was, um, did you need to go to the ER or enter the hospital? Um, and it turns out the group of people that they gave it to, it's, it's a fairly rare event. So um, in the treatment group, the rate was about 1%. And in the, in the control group, the great rate was around 3%. The rate of now, what? you and I, what, so you guys all know that there's a huge difference between 1% and 3%. Hold on, and it sorry, was, Adi, the rate, what rate are you quoting? The one uh, of a bad outcome. Of a, the just, bad outcome. Yeah, I think, uh, so they formally defined it in the, in the study. And this is a randomized controlled trial, so we, we can't point to, to other- so bad outcomes happened at three times higher rate in that's the right. control group that did not receive the antibodies than mm-hmm. in the group that received the antibodies, okay? That's right. And these, but the problem was it's three times higher, but three times a very small number. Yeah. And this confuses people. And it turns out the, these only work if you get it right away. You have to, it's, it has to be, it's something on like an outpatient basis, and it's extremely um, time-intensive. You have to go to the hospital. You got to sit in a chair for two hours. And it turns out that one of the reasons why people don't want it is they feel fine when they first get diagnosed or yeah, they just right. have a, okay. and they don't know what their future is going to be. And they're, you're asked to like, come down and do this whole procedure. And people are saying, nah, don't. And yeah, this yeah, is the right. bad part. The FDA seems to have encouraged it only to a certain demographic that's at high risk. And so now what happens? There's just too much of it. Yeah, right. Hmm. Well, maybe that will, that will become known and people will t- start taking more advantage of this resource because it, it is so available. Eric. So my question, Adi, is more about timing. I mean, six months ago, we could easily argue, but what about now? My, I thought I had read that there was some, I don't call it interference, but that it's not recommended that people get the vaccine who have had this treatment necessarily. So let's- the Monoclonal treatment. Yeah. So uh, let's, so if that's true, then the question is, would you rather have this treatment, which- Again, you've already had it, I assume. Um, you already have. You already test positive if you get this treatment. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you already test positive. But I'm saying, um, if you play it out, which one would you rather have right now? Like, even if you've, ha- even if you have a weak case of it, if you, if, if you didn't know how long the um, it was going to last the immunity from actually having it. Would you, you would rather take the monoclonal antibody. Absolutely. If someone said to you, you can't take the, you can't take the vaccine for a year. Absolutely. Immediately. If, if you have a positive cake, that's a scary situation. I, the thing is what I understand full well is the difference between 1% and 3%. It's a huge difference. <laughs> right. And it's funny. Cause you know, I was, t- I was talking to some, some, some friends and I said to them, if you have a 97% chance of something versus 99%, is that a big difference to you? And they said, no, that seems to be about the same. And I'm saying, how about 1% versus 3%? Oh, that's humongous. You know, that's mm-hmm. the same thing. <laughs> Welcome to behavioral decision-making, Adi. That, that's your, your, your fundamental research from your buddies from Israel, Donovan and Tversky. That's, oh. right on it. that's fantastic. Um, Adi, the thing you said also that jumped out to me was that 40% of New Yorkers, I'm not sure if you meant New York City, New York State. Yes, but, City, New York I, City. 
I think it's I think we ought to keep our eye on some of these macro numbers. And I, am I am I remembering this right that I saw that we're coming up on 20 percent of the United States population will have been infected. I'm real close to that number right now. I didn't realize it was that high. That's an astoundingly high number. Also, by the way, this is even more astounding. I think we just cleared the mark where one in a thousand Americans have died from coronavirus. Mm -hmm. One in a thousand. It's unbelievable. We got to keep our eye on some of these big picture numbers because that's the context for all of this. But 20 percent. That's amazing. And you're saying New York City is 40 percent. I mean, it does start calling to question this issue of herd immunity. And we, we know we've had conversations over the months about what it would take if it's not, you know, full on herd immunity. But what's the number that really pushes down the, the reproduction of this thing? And our sense is that it's probably, you know, 40 or 50 percent, something like that. So with 20 percent kind of out there already and a lot of variation across the country, but 20 percent. And then if we can just get the vaccines going, it's not that far before we start making a big difference in this thing. If we what can up? get back. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Adi. If we can get vaccines to people 60 and over where most of the hospitalizations and deaths are occurring, that would be a game changer. Getting down to, uh, like it or not, none of us are at 60, that's good, but we are the next lower tier. We shouldn't be a priority, but if we can just get everybody 60 and above vaccinated, that okay. would be so just I really, fantastic. I really like what you're talking about, Florida and Ohio. Ho- hopefully, hopefully that works well, and then other states might follow it shy something reasonably smart like that i would go for the just you know don't let it sit on the shelves i'd rather have somebody anybody vaccinated now than wait for a week until we can find out exactly the right person when we've got more coming i mean the shelves are gonna and heck we've got more vaccines going to be approved in the next couple of months i think adi's point is really important which is we know something about which ones are the we talk about this all the time on moneyball which is which are the large effect sizes and adi said by far age Mm-hmm. is the number one determinant. So distribute the damn vaccine yeah. by age. And then if there, and then once you get people above a certain age, then maybe there's like, okay, now let's worry about people that have had heart disease or let's worry about people that have cancer. Okay, but still, let's first get everybody in a certain age group. To me, this it's shocking to me, Adi, because this is the first I'm hearing about Florida and Ohio doing it this way. Like, aren't there people with statistical knowledge that should be talking about effect sizes and simplifying the distribution structure and making it clear about, you know, how hard would it be? All right. Now the 59 year olds, you show up this week, the 58 year olds and the 57s, 56s. Keep going. See, quite honestly, Nate Silver has been screaming this on his Twitter feed. He said all this talk about comorbidities and socioeconomic status and is simply lower order than age. It is by far the biggest uh, and most predictive risk factor. I mean, and, and I think what, I, what I'm going to say is that I was actually trying to figure this out. So how does a comorbidity like diabetes compare to how many years of age? And the answer is it's only a couple of years of age is about the equivalent, maybe oh, one to two. Oh, and so the problem is, is that you're right. If this were, if we said, okay, today's the day for all 60 year olds, we should probably start with the ones with diabetes. But the problem with that is it slows the process down. Yeah, that's sorting. The sorting slows the process. Not even, you know, it'd be funny if everybody got assigned. I know this is funny, but let's say you had a <laughs> national mathematical model. Everyone gets assigned a COVID age. And then you get, I mean, I'm just saying, I can dream. <laughs> I can dream, Adi. Everyone yeah. gets assigned a COVID age. Yeah. And when your yeah. COVID age comes up, you come in. 
And you're saying that's a model that says it's your age plus or minus these comorbidities. Exactly. That's right. I would be curious, is my COVID age actually older or less than my real age? <laughs> that's a, that, <laughs> Eric, you proud do, or not so proud of. There's probably a website out there already. You can punch in a few factors and get that number for you. But what Audi, what Audi is saying that I, that I love, and it's a, it's a theme in the show, of course, but especially lately, is you got to the optimal distribution depends on behavioral human factors as well. And if, and if little considerations that we think, you know, ought to sort people gum up the works, then we need fewer considerations. And I think that what we've observed in the first two or three weeks of this thing is we need simpler. We just need simpler. I want to say one thing in defense of the people who are trying to get, come up with these priorities. It's not all nuanced things like comorbidities. It's also frontline healthcare professionals. What role is that? And by the way, first responders. Oh, and where do teachers come in? So it's that kind of, th- those are yeah. more apples versus oranges than, than big oranges versus little oranges. And I'm not oh, arguing yeah. against the simplicity of just kind of doing it by age, but like in a, th- in, in, in a situation where you have a limited number, like if we, if we sort of felt like there was going to be a limited number of vaccines for a, an extended period of time, that's not really the reality, but that if, if that was the case, then you might want to kind of have your priority scheme be more about, you know, trying to target kind of mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. super spreaders or whatever. Whatever we, uh, you know, trying to identify those healthcare workers seem like kind of an obvious one in in, in that kind of context. So I, I kind of, that, I, I think that's the only pseudo rational argument you can make to against just doing the simple solution is if you really had a great way of targeting the people who are actually spreading this disease at a higher frequency than others. But I, yeah. I'm not sure they're even necessarily. Right. No, we don't. That. We don't. I mean, I'm right. gonna, I'm gonna caveat. I mean, I, Kate, you're absolutely frontline healthcare workers go first. And even if even if it's not the necessary thing between for risk, et cetera, because they do wear masks, they're very good at that. They have great PPE. They're they tend to be younger. I don't care. They their job <laughs> no. demands that they go first. Well, this, this I don't care me, what their risk is. Well, this is like Stanford <laughs> Stanford Hospital getting this so wrong. I mean, have y'all seen the algorithm that they use? They had this multi complicated uh, algorithm, and but that they're sitting there in the consideration set is do we vaccinate our frontline healthcare workers in our Stanford medical system. And the answer is, by the way, last time I checked, I mean, again, this gets back to your point. I'm not, no one would disagree with you, but just going back to your point, um, most doctors don't have on their CV or they're certified as a frontline healthcare worker. We've been asking the question, well, aren't we teachers? Like, do we get included in teachers or not? So I'm all I'm commenting on is no one would disagree that frontline workers, but how do you define that exactly? And that's leading to a huge amount of ambiguity, which may well also be slowing things down. To, To me, do you treat COVID patients? That's it. That's what matters. I mean, are you going to be in the room uh, or potentially in the room, like an EMT person, someone who has to go pick up someone who's in at home, um, are you likely to be to be in the same room unprotected with, or or even protected with a COVID right. patient? You're front line. That's it. Well, yeah, and COVID patient could be, you know, yeah, they don't know they're asymptomatic. I mean, I mean it could yeah, be a lot absolutely. of situations. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's front line. And you That's mean without, clear. without your own choice? Because you could argue a teacher yeah. could be, but we have a choice. That's true, and also and also children are just. I mean. They don't seem to be spreading at any rate differently than anyone else. Teachers are not like struggling, right? They haven't, it's not like the group of teachers uh, are, are dying any more than anyone else. They're, and, that, and then when I, I say that, when you rate that next to um, age, it's just a, it's a small factor. But it does have to do with, with the, the, I think, and, and this is emotional, that matters. I mean, the fact that, that, that every single day you got to walk into a classroom and worry about being infected is something that we do need to treat, even if it's 
and it's something that's important. And I don't want to walk away from that because I do want to get this vaccine before I walk into a classroom. Well, guys, this is um, let's let's wrap up for this week. But I I think there's a major theme in this conversation, and that is um, behavioral considerations in the distribution. And it's it just it's one more time we've seen in this in this pandemic where the the models get gummed up by human behavior. And if we're not considering that, then we're going to have the wrong model. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week. You guys can reach out to us in the meantime. Reach out on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle up there at WMoneyBall. Or reach out on email. We have an email address where you can drop us a note. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Consider that the mailbag. We pick up questions from you guys. We pick up observations. Uh, We love to hear from you, so let us know. That or um, at WMoneyBall on Twitter. Rolling into the second quarter here, this is going to be our only open line segment because we've got a one-hour interview on the far end with Eric Eager talking football analytics. Guys, coming out of the COVID conversation, I'm curious to get your take on the NBA so far. Early season stuff, teams are, you know, just three games into it or whatever, but they're going to make a good. They're they're making a go of it without the bubble, and there's a lot of suspicion that they're going to, they've had some trouble already. Are they going to be able to make it to the end of the year? What's your take either on the COVID side or what you've seen from teams so far in the NBA? I think it's hard to know what to make of them. You know, normally in the NBA season, I think we had, uh, I forget who we had on last year, but was mentioning that you really don't know much about the NBA season until like 20 or 25 games are played. I think this year it's going to take even more given the shortening of training camp, the shortening of preseason. I mean, the, the, the thing that shocked me, and I had a good statistical question to ask you guys, is here are three teams that no one thought were going to be good. Okay, I'll name them. The Magic, the Hawks, and the Cavs, okay? They're all 3-0. and Now, let's say they're really 40% winning teams, maybe even a third winning teams. They should have won one game, and they've won three. So, you know, simple math says they're two above their expectation. At what point would you start going back to non-stationarity? Would you say, maybe our priors on how good they are aren't right? And so at some point, I have to shift away from they're two above my expectation of a third. Maybe a third's not right. When do we say maybe they're a half team? Maybe they're a 50-50 team. But right now, those are the three things, the three teams that have stuck out. How are the Magic Hawks and the Cavs 3-0? and Okay, so we can make this super precise, right? You guys are Bayesians, and so you've got some kind of prior. And this the yep. key thing about that, you got to choose – you know, specifics about the prior. One of the most important things you choose about the prior is how much weight to put on the prior. Right. And one, one way we think about it is we think about it as a fictitious sample size. So if I think, if I think a team is going to have a, a win percentage of 0.5, and then I've got a series of games that tell me either, you know, 0.4 or 0.6 or whatever it is, I've got to integrate that new information with my prior. And the way to think about fictitious t- sample size is, well, if it's 10 games, then after they've played 10 games, my prior is going to weigh exactly as much as the observations on the court. So we're three games in. How much weight should that carry relative to our prior in the NBA? I, and well, we, you know, 
we can we can estimate these things empirically, or we can speculate about it. From I have less intuition about the NBA, but from baseball, I always kind of think that I I think the point at which my prior probably balance like is at fifty yes. percent with 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 the actual in season data yes. is like maybe in June of a typical year. So that's like a third of the season in. Okay, okay, or something like that. Yeah, y'all should have maybe really a little bit good. more. You three should have really good intuitions for the fictitious sample size on your prior in baseball. Maybe we can start there. So just to be clear, in basketball, you're saying make it worth about a third of this season is 24 games. Mm-hmm. Let's say you have a team that should have been like one and, you know, a 333 team. You would have them going into the season in some senses like eight and 16. And now they're 11 and 16. And so just for our listeners out there, 11 and 16 is going to be because they've added three wins and no losses. 11 and 16, which is, you know, you, that's what your new updated guess would be about their true strength and somewhere around there. Well, I mean, again, that's at the 50 percent of prior and data. So I kind of feel like their true performance would be like halfway between the two, basically. Yeah. Right. right. You got to. So, so really, it's it's like in, in baseball in early. Like, yeah. So after 24 games, if that's the third of the season, you know, if, if it's the same as baseball, then you know, my kind of prediction of their end of season record is going to be halfway between their current record and my prior record for their season. Right. That's what I'm saying. So I'm saying if, if, if we treat, you know, one of these teams that no one thought was going to be good, you're going up a little bit. I mean, obviously 11 and 11 and 16 is a lot better than eight and 16, but it's probably no more than seven or eight percentage points higher. So maybe you have them now as a 40% team instead of a 33% team, which takes them from 24 wins to maybe somewhere in the 28 to 29 wins. So we're not just going to give them the two extra wins. We're going to give them, and that of course you have to carry out throughout the season, but you're also going to give them maybe a five or six percent increase in their belief about their probability. That sounds about right to me. Yes, that doesn't that, that, sound too far off. And this is, I think it, I agree. It, and I think this is exactly the way we should be thinking about priors. And you, should, and you should look at it from multiple perspectives. So for example, if Shane, if Shane's priors are worth a third of a season, that means at the end of the year, his opinion of that team's true ability is based three quarters on what right. he saw in the course of the season and one quarter on his prior. And you have to make sure that feels right. If that's, if that's sounds about right to you. Well, I mean, that, I guess, you know, I kind of think of it, it's not necessarily a linear drop off either. And, in, in, you know, like b- through the entire season for me, but, uh, but yes, no, I, 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 I agree with that general intuition. Yeah. The only, so, the only challenge is that for those listeners here at Morton Moneyball, they want to make it more complicated. You could start. You can make it more complicated. Just mathematically, yes. But like, do later season games and early season games each count as one? Like, that's another thing you could say. No, I'm saying right now we're counting a win as a win. Like, if they add a, if they win a game, game sixty. No, this is fascinating. I agree entirely. So, so the the more discount, then in some ways the more that prior. If the prior is a separate signal, then you're going to, then the prior is going to carry even more weight relative to the season if you're discounting early season games Correct. now i'm curious uh, now eric you're you're the baseball basketball guy here what do you think how much do you think prior should weigh in basketball and here's a wrinkle for 2021 should it be different this season but than other seasons because of the coronavirus yeah so a couple things um my intuition says you want higher variance you want more uncertainty and so, which, which means to me this year or in basketball this year, this year, sure. I'd want more uncertainty, which means I should put a lower effective sample yeah, size right. than prior. 
Right. That's, right. that's the first thing I would say. And by the way, lots of evidence I'll talk about in a second suggests, at least so far, it's only a small number of games. That's probably true. Um, the second thing I would say is that, um, you know, there are a lot of teams so far that their performance is strange. But in some sense, though, a lot of teams are like, all I got to do is get into the playoffs. And who really cares? Like, what are we trying to get a predictive of? Is it the number of games you win in the regular season, which might be meaningless at some level? Or is it, I want to actually win the title? Like, I don't care what the Lakers record are. Like, For example, let's say for some shocking reason, the Hawks ended up with a better record than the Lakers. Are any of you going to give me odds of the Hawks over the Lakers as yeah. a chance to win the title? No yeah, way. So what is it that you're trying to predict? What the, the formula or the math you laid out, Kate, which is good, is about predicting the end of the season record. That's not what teams are trying to optimize. Or, or yeah, and the, I, and the end, I think, end of season, end of season true ability. And what you're saying is there's kind of two gears in the NBA. Correct. You have a regular season gear and you have a postseason gear. And heck, I mean, 538's basketball models, one of the things that they've done over the years was – They've, they have a two-gear system. They have one power ranking for in-season, and they have one power ranking for playoffs because they're explicitly recognizing that it's different in the NBA. Shane, I'm sorry, I jumped on you. No, I, and I, I kind of think that, that that's sort of how much your regular season, and I, I, again, I'm not sure how COVID would enter into this necessarily, how much your regular season is, is the same or different from playoffs it has to do a lot with kind of, you know, kind of how much disparity in, in, in kind of, team kind of ability there is across the league right I mean the Lakers again don't have to really be particularly concerned about their record because they know they're going to the playoffs right right and then but in baseball you know where uh, there's very few teams that you know can't don't have to be concerned about their record from in June because you know if they haven't been playing that well they probably aren't going to make the playoffs even if they are you know kind of on paper, a, a slightly better team, because I, yeah. I just think that disparity is, is less pronounced in, in, in baseball. I think yep. we're already also seeing in basketball this, um, you know, the record, they don't really, that's not what they're optimizing. It's like all of a sudden on a back-to-back night, Joel Embiid just happened to have back stiffness. And miraculously, last night in a back-to-back, uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, both at the same time, just <laughs> yeah. happened not to be ready to play that game. Yeah. Oh, I think this will be a banner because of the shortened – off season, this is going to be a banner year for the load management dynamic that we've already been observing in basketball yeah, more and yeah. more over the last decade. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see post COVID whether we go back to some kind of yeah. pre COVID load management or whether this will kind of be this change point, like almost like a permanent change point in how teams kind of manage their stars. Well, you know, it's, it's a shame because we can't be too snarky about it because we're all about sports science and sports science says load management matters a lot. Now we're mm-hmm. still figuring out how to do it right, but we're all, there's an increased recognition that load management matters a lot. Pushing against that is the fan value and the politics of the matter. And so there's this interesting tension that they're still reconciling. I'd be, I, I mean, I, I think personally, I think there's sports science ought to win. We want to see more of our stars for longer, um, but, yeah, I mean, it's an evolution of the game that is probably not pro fan experience, but is pro. But you also heard Shane pro pro winning if you take advantage of it, you know. And, and I mean, like you kind of have to. I mean, in, you know, it's going to be hard for them to kind of push back against that. I mean, baseball also has experienced a lot of kind of changes that I think aren't pro the fan experience, you know, but have 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 helped a lot of people teams like achieve a winning edge as but well. Shane, just also playing it out, those two tier thing that we've been talking about. Let's 
project forward to the playoffs. Let's imagine that there's no fans potentially in the stands. Well, that might cut down the home court edge even more. So now I'm the team saying, what's the difference? One, three, I'm the Lakers. I'm the one seed, three seed, five seed. Who cares? You know, and because uh, the home field, the home court doesn't mean as much. Right. Um, that was That's one thing you could be, I mean, they're forward-looking enough to know that home court might mean a lot less this year as opposed to injuries or something else. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. You know, we, we just continue to see these weird variations that occur in our sports leagues as a result of coronavirus, and every season it's a different variation. And they're, they're kind of interesting, frankly. One of the most interesting is what's going on in hockey. Yeah. So they've decided to go with this conference. Or and they're almost kind of doing this hybrid. It's not a bubble. There's they're playing in their home arenas, but they are kind of, you know, essentially segregating the team. So they've yeah. essentially divided the, 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 30 teams up into eight, uh, four different conferences and it's only going to be in conference play essentially up until, a fire, so, up until a final four. These are stronger so, conference walls than we normally see. It's one thing to have them. During the regular conference. season, that's what they're doing? Yeah, during the regular those. season and the first couple rounds of the playoffs. So they're, they're you know, it's, it's only, they, 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 they only play outside of conferences once they've narrowed it down to a final four. So it's basically the semifinals and finals of the playoffs. It's really like the old days in baseball. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they only the Yankees and the Dodgers could only play in the world series. That's right. And it's yeah. super exciting as, 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 you know, as, as a Canadian, it's exciting because one of the conferences is the, all the Canadian, a, it guarantees a Canadian team in the final four, <laughs> which, uh, you know, would not certainly be, it has not historically been a guarantee in the last, you know, like 30 years of, well, of I wonder of if we're going to have, we're going to have the problem in hockey that people are whinging about in college football this year, which is so little interconference play. We have no real sense of the relative strength of the team. Yeah, no. And I mean, like, you know, kind of eyeball, I just kind of roughly eyeballed the rest of the divisions there. There are some divisions that I think are probably going to be a little bit, you, you know, I mean, you've got, um, there's not going to be a parity between the divisions and it'll be interesting to sort of see kind of strength of schedule wise at yeah. the end of the season, how different these conferences are, but they essentially, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, it's like essentially four different like mini leagues and then you yeah. have a champions league at the end. I think it's, I mean, and I think it's, you know, conditional on them not doing a bubble the entire season, which obviously I don't think they would have gotten player approval for anyway. It's kind of a, again, somewhat of a clever idea, I think to sort of have like at least kind of a, a half bubble or at least sort of somewhat of a segregation. Right. Shane, are you, do you think the fans will have ge- stronger geographic rooting interests now? Like I- even if the flyers don't come out of the Northeast, they're going to be pulling for the Northeast representative because it's their. Well, unless their the conference. Northeast represents Pittsburgh or something like oh, that, but yes, no, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, certainly the Canadian, I mean, I, as, again, I'm, super, sure. I'm super excited for this like Canadian, like, you know, like I, like I kind of feel like there's going to be a lot of pride thrown into just being oh, a Canadian team that makes it. Okay. Does that mean even Lee if they don't go anywhere in the final Lee, four, are Lee fans going to pull for Canadians? Or Canadians no. For no, 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 no. Oh, I think, I just think okay. there'll be a greater fan interest in the kind of the con, you know, to a certain extent getting out of the conference into that okay. final four. Speaking of, of interconference play, we finally are to bowl season. And so in college football, we are actually seeing some interconference play. We've only had really minor bowls up to this point. I'm not sure if anybody, everybody, you might have caught the Liberty Coastal game. Everyone's paying attention to that one. Tonight, we have a couple of good ones. We're recording this Tuesday afternoon. In just about half an hour, Oklahoma State and Miami are going to kick off. And then later tonight, Texas and Colorado. The Texas, Oklahoma State, Miami, you should watch that game. I mean, De'Aaron King, if you haven't seen him play quarterback for Miami, he's always worthwhile. Oklahoma State came into this season with high expectations. They've underperformed. They are one-and-a-half-point favorites going into that game. Tomorrow, one of, the, one of the best of the non-major bowl games, Florida at Oklahoma. 
Um, and that's a, that's the late game down there. And the, the Sooners are favored by three and um, should be fun. I think that line has really come around because early on, yeah, early, exactly. Look at this line movement, guys. This is a, this is a win for, for power rankings. Florida opened two and a half point favorite. And we told you on the show last week that we thought the sign was wrong on that thing based on Massey Peabody and FPI. And the, and the line has come all the way around. The sign was wrong. And now we look at Sooners by three. Then the weekend, well, of course. I've never seen a move of five and a half points in a week. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. It might have happened in one day for all I know, but it's flipped entirely. Have there been external, like, have played, like, like, is this just no, that, driven by kind of like, you know, the market has kind of corrected or, or have there been like kind of a, several opt-outs on that for that game? To be honest with you, I, I, I am not enough on the personnel for those two teams. No, I certainly haven't heard of anything. I know you and I might have. Now, to be fair, we also think the sign is wrong on Auburn Northwestern. Northwestern's favored by three and a half. And it's almost the exact same thing as the Florida-Oklahoma thing. And the line hasn't moved on that. So the same thing. i gotta, I got to own it both ways. That could be a, a Gus Malzahn thing. Gus got fired at the end of the year, the Auburn coach. And so that could be one of the dynamics there. Does anybody have any interest or any hope that the semis are going to be interesting this weekend? We're, we're going to I'll see. be watching them. I'm planning on watching, you know, basically all, all day Friday. Um, but you don't have any hope for the Clemson-Ohio State game? Yeah, I think that could be hope. I have hope, but I would not be surprised if Clemson blew them out. Yeah. It's also going to be a little bit of a, uh, of a first-round draft pick show-off between – Fields and uh, Trevor Lawrence. You know, if you want an opinion on which quarterback's going to go higher, which quarterback's going to do better than the <laughs> NFL, that's a good game to watch. I think, Lawrence is, going, I think Lawrence is going higher no matter what hey. happens in that football game, unless he gets hit by a meteor or something like that. But um, <laughs> this time yeah. two years ago, we thought Kyler Murray was going to play baseball. Mm-hmm. So no. think, crazy things happen. Well, I think the big question it's is, true. you know, does this? It's just one game, but you know. Uh, we've talked about it, you've talked about it, Kate. Justin Fields' performance in big games has not been that great. Right. If he performs poorly again, is like the Jets, who are sitting at number two, you know, we all believe Jacksonville's going to take Trevor Lawrence, to the Jets, who just recently drafted Sam Darnold, are they, you know, is, is it at the level now where you think Justin Fields could be playing for playing for the Jets? Yeah. yeah, no, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I mean, you know, not just as a Pats fan, am I hoping, uh, happy that the Jets kind of fell out of that number one slot because it makes their decision, I think, more interesting. I mean, like, you know, I mean, Trevor Lawrence at number one is kind of an obvious move for for anybody who is in the number one slot. But now, you know, is it, are the two or three best quarterbacks necessarily, you know, going to be obviously better than than just trying to kind of fix Darnold and like trying to get him like an offensive line help or, or whatever they could do with that number two pick. Yeah, that's interesting. They, they, I've been actually watching this pretty carefully because I'm a, a long suffering Jets fan. And my, my view is if they're, if they're not able to get Trevor Lawrence, I just don't see the advantage and they could really get yeah. a lot for helping them build their offensive line and on their other problems, which are so vast yeah. that, that and Sam Darnold, I mean, besides being so young and never having a good offensive coordinator and it's just an absolute mess, the bottom line is is that if you really can't take a number one pick for a, for a quarterback, it seems that it's a waste of of uh, 
of material that and you can really use to build yourself. Capital, by the way, Adi, there might be a lot of people that would love, and for good reason, to have Justin Fields. They may get mm-hmm. a they may get a boatload of picks yeah. for that number two pick, yeah. and you know that would be tremendous value, great for, for them. And I think that's the right move. I mean, but they have, they have to move is. on. They have to move on from Gase first, right? They they, they have. Why, well, yeah, and I guess this is all. I mean. I, I I can't imagine a world where that doesn't happen. So, you know, it, it, it really is sort of can a new head coach essentially fix Darnold, especially <laughs> right. with That's a lot of that, extra pieces so, kind of yep. around them. Yep. So, okay, I want to ask you a bizarre question, but Adi made me think of it. Could you make any argument whatsoever that the Jets having the two pick is better than the one? Let me make the argument. If you have the one, you have to I like. I know what you're going to say. All right. I know what you're going to say. If you're the one, you have to take Trevor Lawrence. But if you're yeah. the two, even if you have Sam Darnold, but if you're the yeah. two, you're given license to trade down, maybe yeah. get a bunch more picks, you might be in better shape. Is there any no, legitimate yeah. argument that can be these made? kinds of These kinds of considerations matter. And I mean, come on. We just talked about the behavioral considerations in the first quarter of the show. I remember when the Chargers blew up when Leaf blew up for the Chargers. So they spent the number two pick in the draft in 1999, I think. Yep. Or, or 90, 98, 98? 98, I think. 98. Right? So Manning, 98, number one, and Leaf, number two. And then he just completely crashed and burned. And then a few years later, they had the number one pick, I think, in the draft. And they dealt it for a lot of picks. I think it was Michael Vick's year, if I'm not mistaken. And they could have taken Vick. And my argument was that that pick was actually less valuable to them than to other teams because of such a bad experience with Leaf. And I'm not saying it's rational, but yeah. there is a political aspect to team building. I mean, there's fans. Yeah, if I was a general manager, I might like the less pressure of having the number one. You, yeah. you know, you 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 know, you you could you can make an argument. I think the way to pursue Eric's argument is you are going to be less pressured into bad decision-making yeah. by having that number. Maybe better than Fields, too. Yeah, can I just – if you have number one, can't you trade with number two? And then now you have number you two wouldn't. and you can get <laughs> – Yeah, I, I, I just <laughs> think it's – You wouldn't, Dottie. I, no, well, I mean, but you're saying okay, I know you wouldn't, but uh, but logically you could, and therefore there's no I way I'm asking questions. Well, no, I, I you know, and I and I, I, I don't think one. even Eric, uh, we can't have an argument where we. It, it is pretty obvious that the number one slot is more valuable than the number two slot. I mean, there is yeah. a monotonicity <laughs> there. It's just yeah. the decision making. I, I think Eric. But this this Eric, shows me this shows me both the potential and the challenges. This shows me both the potential and the challenges I have in trying to convert you guys to full behavioralism. Yeah. Because last quarter, I had Adi fully on his operations model for distribution needed uh, behavior considerations. Here comes Eric with a deeply wise, nuanced addition of behavioral considerations to the number one pick. And Adi, you flipped over to a rationalist. It's all about logic. Uh, no, 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 yeah. no, no. But we, I have to say, okay, when I was talking COVID, we were talking the population. You got to be behavioralist when you're dealing with the population. When you're dealing with the upper echelon of GMs and management of a sports team, they should be able to. We should be able to talk rationally. Should. You just said should and rationally. Should, but should. Empirical evidence should. suggests you we should not necessarily <laughs> assume rationality, right? And and it's yeah. not just it's not just it's not just rationality. It's the yes. various pressures that they face as well. Some of it you can't guarantee me. You can't guarantee me, Adi that Trevor Lawrence is going to be better than Sam Darnold. Yeah. And so in some no, sense, no, no, but, but if you but I can you, guarantee you that position one is better than two in the draft. Oh, that you, only, only if you trade it away, right. only if you use it properly. And there's right. no guarantee that you're going to use it properly. I love, I think Eric's hypothesis is one of the, 
most clever things he's not he any of us have said in a little while i love it (laughs) talking about the nfl uh we're going to get into more detail with eric eager in the next half but we got a few minutes here i'm curious to get your reactions to week 16 how the playoffs are shaking up the jets won again Mm -hmm. um there, the, I mean, the NFC East is just it's, it's remained fascinating yeah. down to the end. I mean, one of the great playoff questions we've had in a while in this tor- terrible conference. What are your what's your take on uh, the NFL? Well, I love where the Bucks are sitting right now a lot more than I did just a week ago because now with the Rams losing, um, they're looking like the five seed. Not for sure. They have to beat Atlanta at home. They're probably going to do that. But if they're the five seed, they play the winner of the NFC East. I mean, whatever bad team that is. I mean, Reds, the Washington football team has no quarterback, essentially. If it's the New York Giants, I wouldn't want to be Tom Brady playing those guys. Well, it just seems like a, res- a historical <laughs> recipe for, for no, no, actually, something for shenanigans. Yeah, but either way, they'll be the favorite on yeah. the road in that mm-hmm. playoff game. Undoubtedly. And, you know, I don't Who knows if it means anything or not. But, I mean, they did play Green Bay this year. And I don't know if it means anything. And they beat him 37 to 10. You know, so – I, you know, look, if you have to play, look, and they lost twice to the Saints. I think if you ask the Bucs right now, maybe it's irrational, who you would rather play in the second round, the Saints who throttled you twice or Green Bay who you blew out, they'd say Green Bay. For yeah, sure. no, and I mean, and I mean, I, again, I think it, you know, to the certain extent, I mean, it's it's hard to infer too much from early in the season because I do think that they Tampa Bay seems to have been a particularly non-stationary team. But I mean, you know, it, it certain teams match up better or worse against them. New Orleans matched up kind of, you know poorly for Tampa Bay because they can really rush up the middle, which we know That's is the, the one weakness that Tom Brady cut kind of has or well every quarterback has and Tom Brady just happens to share it with the rest of the quarterbacks um so yeah no I mean I I completely agree um you know I, I as kind of a I guess Tampa Bay is my playoff team this year as well I'm, I'm pretty excited about the position that they've gotten themselves into and just in the NFC in general I think is going to be I mean there's some tough teams in there but I think it's a little bit more wide open or at least every team that I look at in the NFC has I think more weaknesses than some of the top AFC teams well, it's certainly fun. I mean, this is one of the most fun playoffs I can remember. And I think it's the, the volatility we've seen over the course of the year. I mean, Packers right now, people think they're one of the one or two best teams in the league. And yet, as Eric points out, they got blown out. Well, what, what do you like guys a month ago? What do you guys think of the seventh seed? I mean, because that's going to be sticking around, right? So uh, I hate it. I, I hate it because like of it, the- even, even though it has made for, I think, a more exciting Week 17. Go eight. Go eight. Go eight. This okay. one by the one team getting a buy in each conference is just a is just a violation. I think it's I, I, so. I, so you would go eight and have no buys, or you would go yeah, eight and okay. no buys. I hate buys, especially buy for one team. It's just completely. Yeah. I want to ask you a question because I got some. I got a little text from Rufus here, real time during the show. Um, there's a story out there that Andy Reid saves his best plays and best best game plans for the better teams. And so there's a story out there that says, yeah, the chiefs are barely getting by, but that's because they're not showing all they have. And once they get into the playoffs, they'll start showing more. Do you believe this story? And more generally, do you believe that some coaches are better against better competition than other coaches? And I'm going to answer this as best I can. Beyond, beyond just their quality, overall qualities. Yeah. Beyond their overall quality. Is some perform? Is there an interaction that some that could, between coaching and opponent strength? I think there can be. I, I I'm not sure. I believe too. I, I certainly would not um, attribute too much Kansas City's kind of like 
weird streak of like only winning close games over yeah, the last. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would be cautious about over interpreting that as, 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 you know, an actual strategic plan on their part, as opposed to just yeah. them just getting lucky. I mean, Mahomes, for example, just has been on, you know, lucky on interceptions this year at like, I think an historical rate, for example. Yeah. 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 Well, let me tell you what, what Rufus found just real quickly. He looked at game grades, which is our massive Peabody rankings of a single game. They're not perfect, but they're representative. And then he asked, you know, are there coach effects here interacting with opponent strength? All right. So just give me that. And number one on the list, Bill Belichick, number two on the list, Andy Reid, number three Mm. on the list, Doug Peterson. Let's go to the other end of the list. Worst coaches against better competition. Bruce Arenas, Sar Arians. Arians, yeah. Bruce Arians, uh, uh, Eric, I'm sorry. Jason Garrett, number two, and Bill O'Brien, number three. No, I so mean. I think it's an interesting test. the smell test on the extreme, certainly. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I would be interested where Sean Payton actually happens on that. Yeah, you know, I, I consider him sort of a top three coach in the league. I, so. I agree. He has, and he's, and he's obviously got the the notches in his belt to show for it. All right, guys, that has been the second quarter. We still have two more quarters to go. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Joined by Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. This last show of the year, we have Eric Eager joining us, longtime friend of the show, one of our favorite guests to talk to. Eric is VP of Research and Development at PFF. You probably know that if you're into sports analytics, PFF is on the frontier, has been for a while, pushing the frontier of football analytics. And Eric is one of the engines. More than an engine, though, man. They let you out up front these days. You're out like you're, you're becoming a face of PFF. It's engine and face. That's quite the combination. Eric, afternoon to you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, you guys are one of my favorites, and it's always a pleasure to, uh, to, to, to get to talk to you guys. Well, we always enjoy talking to you as well. I see that you're sporting. I think of you as a pro football guy, but you're sporting a Coastal Carolina shirt. Is that because you're flirting with Eric? Eric's been flogging those guys all year long. <laughs> it, it was one of the more, you know, as you guys know, the, the college football season has been so tough because you have, you know, you have so little cross-contamination of teams. Yeah. You have – or conferences, right? And you have some teams have played four or five games, some teams. But, like, what I like about Coastal is they played 12 games. And they even played some games outside of their conference. And so um, they were one of the more data-rich teams uh, in the entire college football. And, you know, and my wife had seen me sweating out these Coastal Carolina Chanticleer games. uh, (laughs) And I think she she got confused and thought I was an actual fan. Uh, And so I got this shirt for Christmas. Um, and, 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 uh, yeah, and, and it was, you know, the, even though they didn't win the other day against Liberty, I thought, I thought that that was a really fun game to watch and really yeah. compelling. And, and, um, you know, after a year, the year we've had, um, you know, a team that plays fun games week after week after week is sort of what we've deserved. Oh, for sure. Barrett, one of the things I noticed at the end of that game was just for those, our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball that don't know, Liberty had the ball at like the two yard line right at the end of the game, and as opposed to running it in, they were going to kneel down and kick the field goal and win. Um, what happened, just so I know, but then I have a question for you, was that the Coastal Carolina guys were trying to push him into the end zone because the guy didn't go down to his knees, stood up, but then they stripped the ball from him right at the one-yard line as they were pushing him into the end zone. So it was great, and then they lost in overtime. But the question I had for you are, are you a big believer in 
you know, downing it, kicking the field goal, seeing what could happen, or go up seven when you have a chance. You'd rather be up seven with 40 seconds left than possibly be up three if it's not actually the game-winning play. We saw an example of that in the NFL this last year. I was going to get to that. It was very similar to the Raiders and the Dolphins game, too. I just wanted to hear Eric's thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's one thing, and I think that it's important, especially as we enter Week 17 in the NFL, football's a really hard game to play at anything less than full speed. Um, and so what we saw in the, in the Chanticleers Liberty game was a player, not at full speed messing a play up and, and ending up having it be suboptimal in the end. Um, I, I can't remember the exact time I, I'm obviously pro, you know, you know, kneeling down and kicking the field goal when it ends up being the final play, but given, especially in the NFL, we saw this, it cost the Raiders two percentage points and win probabilities to simply not score the touchdown. And, you know, what, what we're, we're missing out on is, you know, the, the ranginess of kickers now makes that touchdown worth quite a bit. Um, so I think in the NFL game, you know, I was sitting there yelling at, at you know, at uh, Las Vegas to score the touchdown because I was doing the math in my head. I'm like, they, the Dolphins are probably going to have enough time to at least get in field goal range with just a little bit of luck, but it's going to take a lot of luck for them to score a touchdown. Um, and I think similarly, you know, with, with with the Coastal Carolina game, it's like you have to be really careful in those situations when you, you know, you know intentionally don't score because what you end up putting is players who I don't think are in the case of call in the case of the NFL, but even in call, they're not paid to think about those situations over and over and over again. So you're making them uncomfortable. And, you know, I think it was Gabe Kapler, who's the manager of the San Francisco giants. And I once said, you know, look, I can, I can do the, I can do the most analytically minded thing, but those things don't have a big enough edge for me to put a player in a position he's uncomfortable with because you lose so much more in that situation than you do even trying to squeeze the edge out of, you know, the juice out of the orange there. So, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I, it was a clear call in the NFL game that it was a bad play. I, I have to see what the time was, but, you know, ultimately it didn't end up working out for Liberty because the player clearly wasn't sort of comfortable with the situation he was put in. Yeah, and I mean that I, I was going to bring up kind of the timing aspect of it. it, it to me, it was a clearly bad uh, decision in the Vegas Dolphins uh, in the Raiders Dolphins game because they still left them. You, you know, I mean, if, if 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 you're basically staying out of the end zone so you can burn the clock down to essentially zero, so that that last game-winning field goal is the last play of the game, I think that's probably a more slightly more uh, rational decision than what they did. So it must, I, it would be cool to kind of see the relative probabilities of all these things yeah. as a function of essentially the time remaining. Yeah, for I mean, sure. There, I know there, that- there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of time left. I mean, they had to give up like a 50 yard play to, to, to bring those guys back. Right. So it was more than just funny time management there on the Raiders part. Yeah. It was about a two percentage point play because again, the, the ranginess of the kickers in the NFL is, is, is immense. And, you know, even, I think even if they don't call the, the, the face mask, I mean, they got to the Raiders 41, a 58 yard field goal in the NFL is still a makeable kick. So it's tricky. Like, and it was the same thing was true. So a, a week ago when we were looking at the Carolina Panthers, who once they got to the 15 yard line down 11 against green Bay, kicked the field goal on first down to avoid that two minute warning. Um, there were some questions that I had about that mostly because of, and we had it being like a one percentage point, like loss as a result of doing that, because the, the hard part with all these calculations is, you know, it's conditional. Like what's my probability of scoring a touchdown conditional on being at the 15 yard line. 
Whereas, you know, he's like, well, you only need a touchdown and a field goal. You have to get them. Who cares about the order? Well, actually, the order matters if if the one time you're at the 15-yard line and the other time you're receiving a punt at your own 15, which they'd ended up doing. After everything worked out perfectly for them, they still right. had a very small chance of winning because of, uh, you know, sort of the, the situation they pulled themselves out of to get three points and would have pulled themselves into, um, you know, had they scored a touchdown and only needed a three. Right. Well, we're seeing we're seeing more of this, right? I mean, the teams are now. It's not uncommon to see a team go for two when they're down when they score a touchdown after being down fourteen, and all of this is it's kind of a slow evolution of the game in the direction, at least on the part of some teams, in the direction of analytics. Eric, as you look at the twenty twenty football season, we mostly I think you're talking about pro, but you can dip into college if you'd like. What do you think is different? How are we thinking about the game? What what are you seeing emerge as a result of the influence of analytics? Well, I think one thing that's really interesting is how much the popularity of sports betting is really, you know, is is causing us to think about what these points mean and what these points, how these points have value. And people, I think, just in general, have more skin in some of these games by as observers that they're starting to question, do the are these teams really making the right decisions? And then I think even as casual fans, like we're just throwing up flags, I think, a lot more. Uh, as fans of the game being like, hey, is that really the way to do it? And then and now that we have, you know, some of these teams doing what I think are first order rational decisions. So, for example, the Browns go kicking a, a going for two down 14 and then eventually scoring the subsequent touchdown, kicking the PAT to go up one. Now we're starting to think about these cool second order problems, which are if you do that with too much time left on the clock, do you elicit a, a level of. Um, you know, aggressiveness in your opponent that you didn't want. So there was a question. So this was now three years ago when we were interacting with the team and we, I just asked them once, I said, did you ever consider going for two on the touchdown that, that you ended up tying the game on? And he said, no, there was 30 seconds left on the clock. And I know coach X, who's no longer a coach in the NFL coach X wouldn't be aggressive unless he had to be. And I thought to uh. myself, Okay, like that's not something we put in our models, right? Yeah, when, right. You know, Kevin Cole, who's my colleague, who's terrific, he wrote the article that said it was like a twelve and a half percent edge. You know, given you go, you go touchdown, touchdown, it is a better decision to go for two on the first touchdown. But there's there's an assumption in there that the game space is the same. Yeah, and I think that that that's not necessarily true anymore. And that you know, those are so. I think what's really cool about the 2020 NFL seasons, we're thinking about these things because yeah. we have data finally on teams doing what we ask them to do. And maybe sometimes we'll pull back on some of our recommendations given you know sort of the reality of situations. Well, two quick notes on that. One, I'm a little hesitant to embrace your moving over to moving on to second order effects before first order effects have really that much traction because you're talking about a conversation among football watchers mostly and the cognoscenti mostly. Um, and so we, we might like a more complete model, but man, we still have battles to fight on the, on the yeah. first order stuff as well. The other thing though, is the more general theme of it turns out that the environment's not perfectly stationary. This just comes up again and again and again. I mean, you're the one who turned us on to epidemiological models back in January on Miami beach one night saying, Hey, why aren't y'all doing this stuff? We also have someone talk about this coronavirus thing. So I think one of the major lessons of epi models from 2020 is that the world is not stationary, that people respond to the things that happen. And it's not, it's, it's harder, as hard as it is to model the coronavirus, it's harder 
to model people's reactions to the coronavirus. And yet that's a critical input. So you're saying a little bit of the same thing. It's like, hey, you got to respond. You got you to consider the coach's response. But I don't want that to get too much in the way of getting at least the first order stuff right. But Eric, you were going to try to jump in here with something. I was just going to ask Eric, um, whether it's John Gruden or another coach, do you think whether it's someone in his ear or I don't think they can actually, the head coach necessarily can have a surface device in his hand when making decisions. But since I was watching it on the screen and whatever broadcast I was watching actually had betting odds, win probabilities, et cetera, like on the screen, doesn't the coach have this information or do you think he didn't have this information or do you think he's like he was told, don't give me this information during the game because it just confuses me and I can't make decisions in real time with someone talking with these probabilities in my ear? I, I, I'm surprised. So you, you guys remember in the old days when they used to print out the, the pictures of the formations pre-snap? The reason they do that is because you are not allowed to have like essentially computer things that you, that can respond to your inputs. Even so, in the press box, even in the press box. Those yeah, guys even, yeah. So even like Daniel Sturm, who's the guy that does, you know, the stuff for the Ra- Ravens, like he has to either have a book of probabilities that is stationary that he printed out beforehand, or he has to have really good intuition um, because you can't. So like, you know, people like us, people like edge, you know, the, the, the data, the, the, the consultants, you know, you have to generate these things a priori. Right. And so generally speaking, like what it really is, is it's a, it's the result of, and this talks to Kate's point of non-stationarity. It's the result of these folks just simply not necessarily being up to speed um, with the scenario planning. I mean, because if I'm the head coach in the NFL, I that's like most of what my day would be is going through these permutations. And you see it like we we ooh and ah over that one time that that Mike Vrabel went on uh, did the twelve men on the field thing on purpose to generate an extra minute. But if you've played Madden. You've done this before, you know, and you've permuted <laughs> through this before in your head, right? Or uh, I think it was actually the Dolphins who did this on the on the Saturday night game where they jumped off sides, but it actually was a sharp move because it allowed it, it made it so that the Raiders couldn't bleed the rest of the clock, right? Because your know, second and one's a pretty big gimme. Uh, if you jump off sides, that like that that means that the Raiders only have three downs to drain right. the rest of the clock. So right. those things are scenario planning things that like these coaches, I think some of them have done and some of them haven't. You yep. can sort of see the difference. But no, to your point, Eric, you can't actually like enter in a probability calculator during the game and get something spit out. That's such an interesting dynamic that I guess I didn't really think of is that, you know, kind of this this ban on sort of using electronic devices kind of like, a you know, in, in game like that. Basically, it, it means – maybe a lot of these kind of conditional probabilities that they'd like to have on hand, they just don't have a way of kind of organizing those in a, you know, in a non-electronic, I mean, computers are great for, you know, kind of organizing, like if you had like a SQL database of all these different kind of conditional probabilities, you could easily access that. But putting that in some kind of like actual paper or book form sounds very difficult. Yeah, it, it, it is. And we, you know, they have tools from us and from other folks where they can go back retroactively and look and see what the right decision would have been. But the funny thing about football is these edge cases are really rare. Like even when we talk to coaches, like after the season, like they'll say, hey, pull up this one play that I remember being thorny during the year. 
And, you know, there are some teams that always – like the Chargers get caught up in these things like every freaking week. But, like, some of these teams <laughs> don't end up with compelling situations all the time. And so they're left. And then the, – and obviously you can think about the resulting that would come, you know, about. I mean, I was talking, um, you know, over the summer in, in at Wharton's Moneyball. You know, I was talking about the Eagles, and I was like, you know, think about if the Eagles weren't – they were half as successful on their fourth downs in 2017. Where would we be as an NFL? You know, if they would have made, you know, the the last fourth down of the game, but not the Philly special or the Philly special, but not the last fourth down. If they go two for two, one for two on those or oh for two on those, I don't think we're anywhere near as, as far along. But, you know, they had in that season a number of high profile fourth down plays and they all hit. And now we're saying, you know, now we look at Doug Peterson as somebody who, uses analytics and like that was an analytics Super Bowl. Fast forward to 2019, the Ravens who were prolific all season on them go 0 for 2 against the Titans in the divisional round and it's like they're forgotten, right? And and yeah. you know, we lose a little bit of progress there. So football it's it's it just we the the central limit theorem, the law of large numbers just simply doesn't apply, you know, because the it's un, it's non-stationary and you know, we we result probably a little bit too much. One of the phrases you use there really is sobering to me. You said, we lose a little progress. And it's just true. You need to have not only the analytics right, but you need the anecdotes to fall your way. You just you just do, or else you're going to lose some progress. Which, Eric, which is mentioned, offensive to us, right? Because, because we, don't, we, like, we don't like anecdotes. Yeah. Well, you anecdotes know, are, for out, are outcomes as opposed to the actual process. I know, but, right? I, but guys, but, but, but if you're going to fight the battles, you got to have your eyes open about the way these anecdotes work. I mean, you may yeah. not like them, but you want to use them strategically when you can. you got to realize that they're going to matter far more than they should. Eric, you've mentioned Daniel Stern and the Ravens. You've mentioned Doug Peterson and the Eagles. Are there other teams that those guys have been known to be kind of at the front? of the analytics movement have other teams emerged in your eyes over this season? Yeah, I think to me, my darling this year is Buffalo. Um, when I look, you know, and, uh, Buffalo, there are a lot of people's, there are a lot of people's darlings for lots of different reasons. I mean, just yeah. take the game last night. Here's How much a funny reason. Like, so when I used to teach statistics at, at, uh, when I was a professor, I taught out of a book, um, called unlocking the keys of data. And it was one of the uh, authors was Dennis Locke, who actually is the director of analytics for the, Buffalo okay. Bills. He previously okay. was Miami. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to make a causal claim here, but like he joined the team a couple of years ago, and I think that there's a, a have been a significant. I mean, you don't, when you watch Buffalo games, they rarely do something when you're like, "What the hell? You know, what the heck are they doing?" You know, they 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 run play action an enormous amount of time. They use motion. They signed wide receivers that can get open and make the margin for error for their previously poor quarterback to now look really good they yeah. they do all these things that i would they like it, like they they do a ton of things that i would do they look you look at their defense they built the coverage unit to be relatively anti-fragile and you know you look at their front seven and none of their front seven players make in the top 20 at their position group but yet they can still get pressure because as you know all the statistics have shown over the past few years if you can cover on the back end, the, the the rest of the defense sort of falls into place. Like they've done just a number of things where I watch the game and I have this like sort of an immense pride. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, it overcomes the fact that like we were all wrong about Josh Allen, including me. Right. Like right. I watch that game and I'm thinking to myself, I should be upset that I was so wrong about a player, but I'm not because the Bills has done such a good job to create an infrastructure for him not to fail. 
that, uh, you know, not only not to fail, but to thrive, frankly. And, and so that team to me, and like, as a Kansas city fan, like I'm the most worried about Buffalo going into this, into the, because I think that their high end is as good as anyone in anybody in the NFL, including the chiefs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that Josh Allen story is just such a rich one for us. And I, I think that one of the, one of the possible themes there is just this issue of character or what the baseball guys call makeup that is hard to measure and therefore maybe reasonably discounted. But if you compare his, evolution over the last three years and how people attribute it to the work that he's putting in versus say Haskins being released by the Redskins this year, which is seemingly largely a makeup issue. It, I mean, it, it's everyone focuses on the arm strength, but the Josh Allen story might end up being something other than the physical tools. It might be the work that he's putting in. And, and I mean, I also think when we often talk about makeup or character, we think of it as a static thing as well and there's a lot of i think non-stationarity at least and like confidence you know you know i think is is a, is a real thing that i mean obviously is hard to quantify but seemingly like you know i mean mm -hmm. josh allen has the look of a man who's playing with a lot of confidence right now and you kind of compare that to i don't i mean carson wentz i guess would be like at the other end of the extreme where i mean it you know uh, obviously that's Perhaps that's a fundamental tools issue, but that's also clearly a confidence issue in his case as well. Yeah, yeah and I, I wouldn't be surprised if if a team as smart as Buffalo figured that out. Like as far as like, uh, you know, there's the Angela Duckworth research on grit. There's the, um, you know, they're uh, a UPenn professor, I believe. And there's there's a there's a number of like there's a number of ways in which we probably have tried and failed to measure this. And there's a number of ways in which we tried and had some success in measuring this. Um, and, you know, obviously football is such a small sample game. The number of quarterbacks that are drafted is so small that it's hard to make probably make any causal things, but you just watch him and it, you know, even, I mean, any guy who I can watch have fun playing football when he was as bad as he was the last few years, prop, there's probably some signal there, right? Like, and, and it, as much as he was enjoying himself, you know, even though, I, I don't know, like I, I, I think that there's something to that. Whereas, you know, the, the mental toughness you need to be, to, to, to grow as much as he's had to grow over the past three, you know, two, three years is, is probably predictive. Um, and if you can find that in a player or you can, you know, rule it if, out in another player, it's right. If, if, to if. It. those are huge ifs though, right, Eric? I mean, we can say after the fact that that seemed to matter, but did yeah. we, could we have said it ahead of time? Eric, I know you've got thoughts on the bills. Our, our, our friend, Jeff Argus, who's the reason we knew each other long before I got to Wharton long time suffering, Bills fan, you can't help but be happy for the Buffalo team. What are your thoughts on what we're saying about Josh and the Bills in general? Well, I'm uh, this Eric is very excited. I watched last night's game, and the thing that Eric Eager said that impressed me that I thought about a lot was how much they did play action on first down. Um, even later in the game when they were up by two scores plus, they weren't just going to pound the ball into the middle of the line and mm -hmm. do that. They ran when it made sense. Matter of fact, they, they did what a lot of people have said. And I'd love to hear Eric Eager's thoughts about this is a lot of times they ran from a spread formation. I don't understand why teams don't do that more often. I mean, put out five wide receivers, then they got to cover those guys. Why would you run the ball all the time with nine guys in the box? So I was very excited about what I saw from the Bills, and I didn't realize this. I don't know if you guys know. Do you know that Josh Allen has the third highest QBR in the NFL this year after uh, Mahomes and, and uh, Rodgers? <laughs> no, I didn't. It's, it's yeah, well, I think a lot of that is, is something that he's been good at for even before he emerged as a passer, which is running. Like, I know QBR really does. You know, there, 
in their division of credit, they give most of the credit for running quarterbacks to the runner, which I think is a little bit of a, a flaw, but, but Allen does such a good job running the ball and quarterback yeah. runs yeah. are very valuable, especially design runs um, that Allen gets a huge boost there. But I would say, even if you just took his passing, he's at least a, probably a top, you know, I think we had him as some like eighth in war. Um, you know, I think he, I think t- anywhere in the top five is probably reasonable, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, and not only that, like I always say, condense to throw, spread to run, because again, it's all about matchups. And the more people you put in the box, it, it's again, it's a probability question. When I played tight end in college, I had, you know, I, I would always, I always, I was eventually going to ask my offensive coordinator, why do you have me in? Because all you do when I'm in the game yeah. is you bring somebody in the box and you turn it from a five-team parlay to a six-team parlay. Yeah, and, and in yeah. running the football, you know, you require – you know, that requires – it's a very weak link system. You need all the bets mostly to hit to just get a four- or five-yard gain. And, Eric, what you're talking about is perfectly right. Make fewer bets have to happen in order for you to be successful. And you saw it in the passing game last night as well when you condensed the pass – Right. Like you get Lee Smith wide open in the end zone for a touchdown. You get him out in the flat for a 50, you know, 30 yard gain or whatever. Again, it's all about, you know, sort of making better bets. And when you condense everything in the run game, you just make so, you make it so much easier for the defense who has to make one one player has to make a good play on offense. All of them have to make a good play. And, it, you know, it, and I think the Bills understand that probably better than most. We're talking to Eric Eager. Eric is VP of Research and Development at Pro Football Focused. That has been the third quarter. Of You're Wharton listening Games. to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week. You guys can reach out to us in the meantime. Reach out on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle up there at WMoneyball. Or reach out on email. We have an email address where you can drop us a note. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. That is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Consider that the mailbag. We pick up questions from you guys. We pick up observations. Uh, we love to hear from you, so let us know. That or um, at WMoneyball on Twitter. We're talking to Eric Eager. Eric is VP of Research and Development at Pro Football Focus. He was one of the first big analysts they brought in. They, they started out kind of a charting company and then they eventually turned into pretty heavy analytics and Eric was on the front of that. And we've um, had the pleasure of him on the show for many years now. Eric, you mentioned a couple things here that I want to hear more from you about. Um, anti-fragile, you said the Bills built their secondary in an anti-fragile way and you just referred to uh, the offensive line or maybe the offense more generally as a weak link game. I, I think these are connected to some articles you wrote on PFF back in March, going into the free agency period and draft as teams were thinking about how to build their team. You had a couple of pieces that looked at this question of what's the optimal structure. Do you, do you want like that? Do you want to invest in having the stars, which means necessarily that you're a little weaker down the road, or do you want to make sure there's, you know, you can settle for not having stars, but you're not going to be weak or have holes anywhere. What did you find in that analysis and have you thought about it since you did that work in March? Yeah, and two, so a lot of that, the the uh, I think inspiration for that was some of the discussions we were having on Miami Beach, which was about coronavirus, and thinking like, you know, if if X X of us do our job perfectly in in curbing a pandemic, but one minus X don't, right? Then 
it really doesn't matter, right? It's sort of like there were all these kinds of things like, you know, the way that vaccines work and all this stuff was sort of going through my mind. And I'm thinking about it in coverage too. So in Philadelphia, you know, Darius Slay, for example, the, the Eagles put a ton of money into him. He's great. He's played well this year. But Dallas the other day had three good wide receivers. So they just went to the two wide receivers that weren't being covered by Slay and none of it matters. That to me is a weak link system. Now in offense, you know, you look at some of the great offenses, they're strong link systems. You make one big bet on your quarterback. And mm-hmm. if he's elite, nothing, you know, that team to me is pretty, you know, not the opposite of fragile, right? Like they're, you know, if Andy Reid wakes up in the, mor- the morning of the Super Bowl and makes it to the stadium and Patrick Mahomes does too, like nothing really matters all that much, you know, uh, on the first order. Whereas if, you know, the San Francisco 49ers are missing, you know, two offensive linemen and two of their, their secondary players play poorly, it matters way more than four people's worth, right? Mm-hmm. And so what mm-hmm. I did is I looked at for offensive line, so positions where you are not the attacker. So offensive line and secondary, the team where the other team has freedom over how they attack you. Right. The performance of that unit is more dependent upon the performance of the fourth or fifth best player in that unit. Um, as measured by our grading system and stuff like that. So that really jarred me a little bit because we did our study where we said, okay, pass rush and coverage, coverage actually correlates to winning more. And so, you know, don't draft a defensive lineman early, all that kind of stuff. And I think that that research sort of amended that statement because, you know, coverage is pretty unstable year to year. So in, in some sense, if you put a ton of eggs into one basket there, you're sort of doing it wrong because, that one player doesn't affect that actual unit that much mm-hmm. and it's pretty volatile. So like, so teams drafting corners high was kind of a mistake because you know, that bet might not be the best bet in the world, but you're also sacrificing the opportunity to build the rest of the secondary. Right. So it, it's weird. I think, I think I'm not as, I'm not as uh, dogmatic about don't take a, a really good defensive lineman high because of the price structure of the way it is, but also because Taking the alternative of taking the defensive back high, I think expectations are set that are not reasonable because if you have a secondary with a really good player but a bunch of bad players, that really good player doesn't make the impact you think he does. So, Eric, let me just capture it because you're saying you've put a lot of different variables in the model just now. So you've just added basically the cost effectiveness because you know you can draft a defense an edge rusher for a lot less money than you can get one of the free agency that's right okay let's set that aside for a second um you just added the predictability year over year which is really important but let's set that aside as well and let's just focus for the moment on this anti-fragile idea or let more generally just is it is it about not having weaknesses or is about having the stars and those that's a broad trade-off and one answer you're giving is well it depends on which unit it, defensive backs and line might mean one thing and wide outs and qbs might mean something different so let's bring some subtlety to it but you the you, the, the observation the, and i know y'all did a lot of different analyses but i thought it was very clever that you showed basically like passing performance whether it's offensive line blocking or defensive backs defending if you look at the correlation between the outcomes and the, the quality of the players back there, the correlation is actually higher with like the third best guy than with the first best guy. Now, this is just one analysis, but I know you did a lot of else, other things. I just thought it was a very elegant way to show that it's not about, in those two units, it's not about having the all-star top guy. You don't go out and break the bank for the, the, the best defensive back on the market or the best left tackle. 
it's make sure that you're strong all the way down the line. And it was just this very elegant way of showing that that I thought was very nice. And, it, you know, there's lots of questions to go from here. Right. But yeah. it was a nice empirical observation to further the conversation. Well, I appreciate that. I think it's it also the best mm-hmm. analytics questions yield more questions than they than they answer. You know, so yeah, right. like for me, it was so. so for me, it's kind of reassuring too, because if, if I'm sitting here saying coverage is more important than pass rush, but wins above replacement has an R of like 0.3 year to year with corners, then what am I really like, what does that even mean? Cause I don't even know what I'm buying. Right. But what it does <laughs> is, is it says, but what it says is, okay, but that's not really the who like it's saying, okay, but what I'm trying to make this is a one minus a bunch of probabilities multiplied together type of problem, right? Which is, sure, you're, you might not be able to identify true elite talent at the cornerback position, but your job isn't to actually do that. Your job is to not, your job is to, is to you know, place enough bets that you, that you need all but two of them to be okay, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. and I, to me, that like, I think is, is a nice, it might it might hurt the cornerback market, you know. Frankly, uh, you both at the top of the draft and the high end of free agency. But what it does do is, I think it 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 lowers the burden on scouting for corners. It lowers the burden on acquisition of corners and safeties. Yeah. It, it it lowers the bar for each individual player that you're acquiring because what you need is the collective to reach a certain threshold, which yep. I think is a lot easier of a problem to achieve. Yep. Yep. And so, let me see if you agree or disagree with the statement I'm about to make. And by the way, I love what you said, and I'm going to play it back for my uh, PhD class, because I think what you said can easily be translated into mathematics. And are you investing in X? Are you investing in the slope, et cetera? But let me get to my question. Um, given how good Kansas City is, let me give a different argument. What you're talking about maybe is building a team for the long run. But I have to beat Kansas City in one game, not in the long run. Therefore, if I don't have stars, I can't beat Kansas City. In other words, they are so good at so many positions. So how do you I'll, – I'll put it in a mathy way since we're math guys. How do you make the mean variance trade-off? You have to invest in variance if your mean is lower. And so maybe these teams have to go for the big budget stars because they like, we can't beat Kansas City all over the field. Yeah, I, that's a great – it's such a great question. I, I would say – so take Buffalo, for example – Buffalo did that with Josh Allen, right? Like they said, like, you know, if we hit on X, Y, Z, then Allen, Allen's performance is going to be, you know, two, Allen's two Sigma performance above the mean is going to be enough to beat Mahomes. Like, and I think that they're fairly confident that's the case. Um, and again, the quarterback position is really the order one variable in all of this, right? It, you know, the, the, I think, the you know if you fail the test for example of coverage you fail the test of offensive line I think you can lose way before you get even into the conversation of playing Kansas City like those answering those questions in the affirmative gets you gets you out of the basin of extinction into sort of this situation where you get into with Kansas City and if you can do that then um, then I think it's all about the big bets you face on the sort of opposite of fragile ends of your team, which are quarterback, wide receiver, um, you know, possibly defensive end. Because again, to get pressure on on a quarterback, it's an or situation. You need w- one of them to get pressure. Um, and that again is when you have stars. So to me, it's probably more of like, like a, 
you know, how many stars you acquire. Okay, quarterback, probably one pass catcher, maybe a defensive end. And then everywhere else, you sort of try to make this and situation work. And then, you know, but you know, it's a really good question. And, and it's, it's very baseball in, in sort of the way it is, right? I followed the Twins when I was younger and like they were the perfect team to go 95 and 67 and, you know, or whatever that, you know, end up and, and become the third seed in the, in the AL, they were never good enough to beat the Yankees because they didn't have a number one starter ever. Like they had a bunch of number three starters and they can make the playoffs that way, but they could never even win a playoff game. And I think that that's, that's a question that a lot of teams certainly have. And I think if Buffalo didn't, let's say Buffalo is the exact same team they are, but Josh Allen's, uh, credible interval didn't include Mahomes type games in it. I would not be nearly as confident in them going into, into the playoffs. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when when you talk kind of about the fragility or, or, or the fact that like this a secondary has kind of like the one of the lower kind of correlations from year to year, do you think that's driven mostly by kind of like that there's like a lower correlation in the individual players in, in like defensive backs? aging whatever year to year or do you think it's more that the secondary as a unit is more dependent on some of the other pieces going on the field like the amount of pressure that's being given by by the defensive line etc year to year it's a great question i i would add a third possibility and i think that that's the data that we collect is is possibly contributing to our understanding of of coverage so um i you know my colleague timo Riske and i submitted a paper to the sloan conference recently where we um, used some uh, tracking data to try to better our understanding of coverage, really to, to try to get a, you know, understand what the processes are, drip, are, are in driving, you know, how good a player is. And I think the traditional means by which we've evaluated coverage are very sort of, they're, they're also baseball in the sense that they're the batter to the offense's pitcher type of thing where there's some conservation there. There, there are certainly process level things that we measure, like, if you give up a huge separation, a guy drops the ball, we're still going to downgrade you. Um, you know, if you, if you catch an interception that's tipped, like we're not going to upgrade you for being lucky and stuff like that. But even then, right. You are, you you know, it's really tough to measure coverage without sort of me- mirroring the offense that the coverage faced. And football is such a, low sample game or you only play certain teams once every four years and you play the same you could there there's so much statistical weirdness there that like oftentimes I'm not necessarily sure we're measuring the right thing when we measure coverage Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. so um to me I think that I think the problem is a a lot of it is who you face and it's that's never going to change and I think part of it is we we need to do better job of measuring it. Like, and, and we being me and PFF and everybody else. We're talking to Eric Eager. Eric is VP of research and development at PFF and a longtime analyst and football watcher there. Eric, you've, you've mentioned this. Um, there are places on the roster where you would place the bets, where it's not about um, being strong down the bench, but rather being really strong at the top. And QB is an, obviously one of them. You and your colleague, George, I mean, I, I, I'll brutalize George's last name, Chattery. I'm sure that's the wrong way to do it. But um, how would you pronounce George's last name, by the way, Eric? Uh, I, think I, I think I at least get it. Uh, Shahuri. I think you have to Shahuri. pronounce both okay. H's. Got it. All right. So you and George had a great conversation where he asked you, if you were Miami and you just took Tua last year, would you take another QB in the first round? And you both said, for sure, 100%. And you said, it's not because Tua's bad or that we're, that we're done with Tua. It's that we don't know. 
And we want to keep on taking shots at the QB position until we find our guy. And that's kind of the philosophy that some people have come up with. It's like, like the only reason you might use a high draft pick is to use it for the QB. And they're, I know they're overpriced and all that, but this position is so important that unless you have your guy, it's worth doing it. And unless you're certain, it's worth doing it again next year. Is, is, that the, is that your best philosophy right now on acquiring this most important position? And Eric, to the degree that you can refer to the guy drafted a few spots ahead of Josh Allen, Sam Darnold in the Jets, it would be great because you may, re- I know you know, Eric, but our listeners may not remember, Sam Darnold was picked third in that draft. So just a couple of years ago, so are the Jets, what would you do if you were the Jets relating to Cade's question? Yeah, um, such a, yeah, it's, a, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, given conditional on there being quarterbacks who are worthy of the top pick, which I think this year there are at least three possibly uh, – well, there are at least three that are, I think are worthy of being top ten picks. Conditional on that guy being available, I think there are rare circumstances where um, you should not swing the bat there. So one of them – you know, one of them is obviously you have a veteran quarterback that you're paying $35 million to. I think that that is probably you – know, the there is a point after which – like you're just spending too much on the quarterback position yeah. and there, there are, you know, there are places where you like you, you're too fragile on the rest of the roster where. Yeah. Like, yeah. Right. But if you are, if you drafted a quarterback in the top 10, the way, the way in which the salary cap is structured, if you take another one in the top 10, their collective salary year to year is still only 67% right. of what a high end quarterback right. makes on the quarterback market. So you're getting, Basically, two. Uh, you're, like, let's assume they're all coin flips. You basically give yourself a seventy-five percent chance that w- you you have a quarterback that's worth working with, right? And yep. and to me, if you look at the you look at the unicorns in the NFL, the teams that have become good after previously being bad, it's because they have a quarterback on a rookie deal and then they're able to supplement. So Sammy Watkins, who like had a a tremendous Super Bowl and a great AFC title game has mostly been garbage for the Chiefs, but they were able to spend three years, $48 million on him, 16 million a year. And and that was a mistake, but it's a mistake that you're able to make because Patrick Mahomes is making like five to $10 million per season, right? Right. And the opportunity... To, to be able to do that is is so it, it, I mean it's so immense. If you look at Cleveland, like Baker Mayfield, that that's one of the most compelling questions of the NFL C, of offseason is is he good enough to take his salary from ten million to thirty million? Because they're good right now building that infrastructure around him. Uh, the question becomes, and it, it was this way for Jared Goff. It was this way uh, for Carson Wentz in Philadelphia. They won the Super Bowl while he was on his rookie deal. They could afford Nick Foles at a high price as a backup be- because of the way that he was paid. The teams that have to make that decision are in such a good position, and yeah. you are not in a good position unless you do that, right? And you and you give yourself a far better chance to be in that position if you bite the bullet and take two quarterbacks. Well, I buy everything you're saying, basically, but we are not yet to the place where you see teams not re-sign their guy. We haven't had, that hasn't happened yet. And what you're saying is, look, there's two ways to really do well is to hit really big on a rookie or to, or for that guy to turn into the guy, in which case you can pay him full value and you're great. But there's this middle tier, which is really dangerous. And that's a guy you think is your guy and he's not really your guy, but you're paying him full price. So having the teams not re up on that guy 
when quarterback is so important and it's so hard to get them. What does that mean, Eric? I think that means you need to have stuff in the, in the queue. You got to have, you got to keep on taking guys. I think we're back to where we started, which is, I mean, just keep the queue loaded by the way. If, if QBs are so hard to find, that means you can always sell them. That's what the Pats did for a few QBs in a row. It's just we're growing for a little while. We'll sell them and we, we'll be fine. Listen, yeah. talking about talking about the Chiefs and 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 not talking about the Pats for a change. We got to get some playoff talk with you before we run out of time here. So we got about ten minutes. Very curious what you think is going to happen. Of course, the field's not even set. We've got more permutations possible than ever before with a week left. But we kind of know who the top seeds are going to be anyway. I, I'm, let's put it this way: if you and this might, this might not be a hypothetical. If you were going to bet and you were going to buy against the market prices teams, whether it's a low-seeded team that you think might do better than expected or it might be a high-seeded team that you think is going to even outperform, who are, you buy, who are you long on and who are you short on kind of from top to bottom? If you were going to get in the market, who are you willing to pay for, who are you, who are you, who are you not going to pay for? Well, I think – uh, you know, to uh, Audie, Audie making fun of my Chiefs fandom. I, I think I'm not buying the Chiefs at their current price. I think that they're 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 probably you know too expensive at this point. They're one plus one ninety on the market. I think that that's probably a fair price. Um, the teams that I would be buying into at this point are probably um, going into last night. Buffalo was ten to one. I think they've probably improved their their straights a little bit. But this is for everything team, for, to win the Super Bowl. Okay. Yeah, to win the Super Bowl, I think. I think Buffalo at ten to one is a, is a good bet. Uh, I, I still think yeah. Green Bay. I still think Green Bay is a value at at five and a half to one. Yep. Um, the one seed is such a the one seed is such oh a valuable God. asset yeah. this time of year. Um, and in a in a league where the second and third seed are kind of equal, it's still really valuable. There are some situations where actually you would have preferred it, conditional on being the one seed that there was actually a second team that had a buy. If that, if like 2008, 19, that team was weaker, you yeah, know, right, um, right, right. but, um, but that's not the case. I don't think this year. So green we Bay, do have a weird uh, dynamic that it might actually be preferable to be the five seed as opposed to the two seed. Yeah. That, that's another case. So I think in the Tampa NFC, Bay, yeah. Tampa Bay certainly has a chance, um, a team that I would be buying into, but the, the last one, and I think this is a darling of the show because you guys have Josh on all the time. And I, I think the Ravens are probably the best wild card team uh, in both conferences. I, I think we overreacted to some losses during the middle of the season that were probably wins fundamentally. Um, and so, you know, for example, the Pittsburgh game, they drastically outplayed Pittsburgh in, at Pittsburgh lost by four. Um, you know, the second Pittsburgh game probably shouldn't count the standings, frankly. Uh, and then they had an overtime loss to Tennessee, who's a good football team. Like those losses, I think, stunt our ability to really understand that team. They're a team that that is a five-team parlay on both offense and defense, right? The way that their offense really re- re- oh, no, 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 you got to say more about five-team parlay. What do you mean by five-team parlay? So a team a team that's a pass first team is is i think it's it's a, there's a lot fewer things that need to go right for them to succeed um in a on a team that runs the football a lot you need like all five linemen to do their job plus the running back to do is like there it's more there are more things that can go wrong but the payoff is immense like if the ravens right. last year their payoff was immense for most of the season because everything was in sync if they get that in the playoffs i think they're going to be a tough team to beat okay Okay. Hey, Eric. So uh, I, uh, you mentioned uh, the uh, Ravens losing at Pittsburgh, which brings up the question of home field advantage, particularly in the playoffs, the whole season. What is your take now that we've seen a sub amount of sufficient amount of data 
regarding the actual home field advantage, given there are no fans or very few? I think so. My assumption is that home field advantage has been worth one point this year. Um, that was my mm-hmm. assumption going in, as opposed um, to like two and a half, two and a half point five. Yeah, yeah. and uh, no Denver in the playoffs this year. That that was one that I think still had a true home field advantage with the altitude. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the teams are are outdoor teams in cold weather. So I would probably, I mean, if it's anything, it's probably point five points, maybe one point. Um, so, yeah, I think it's relatively minimal, which I think is playing into a lot of the calculus this week. So, for example, Pittsburgh is nine and a half point underdogs in Cleveland this week. There's the, That's the presumption that Pittsburgh doesn't see a big difference between the two and the three seed and is going to rest their starters. Mm-hmm. I think they've already announced that uh, Rudolph is going to be quarterbacking. For that's it. correct. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, fellas, I'm curious to get your reactions. Eric just offered to buy and sell some teams at the market prices. Anybody want any of that action? Did you do you? Do you Disagree well, with anything? Oh, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm certainly with them on the Ravens. I mean, they were the one seed last year, and I mean, really returned, you know, a fairly, you know, pretty much that entire team. And I think they have had some bad COVID luck and stuff like that. So yeah, the Ravens are definitely, in my mind, kind of a, the scariest of the the wild card teams in the AFC. Um, and, the only thing that know, concerns me about the Ravens, I, I'm just looking at their record. Um, I was just looking. They were three and four this year against teams with winning records. They're, they beat up on the weak teams, seven and one, three and four against teams with winning records. And, you know, this, Eric, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, how about the argument Lamar Jackson, who's not a traditional quarterback, can't play well enough against really good defenses? And therefore, you know, the Ravens can win a game here or there, but are they winning enough games from the six or the seven seed really to win the Super Bowl? Uh, that, that to me is always going to be the question with him. And I think, I think you're absolutely, I mean, the, the, when, you, when, you weigh the, when you weigh the Ravens' chances, I think you have to weigh the, the difficulty in a situation where you don't know a priori who you're preparing for going into a week. Um, so let's say the Ravens get you on a Saturday instead of a Sunday. You know, you have one less day of preparation. The Ravens are a singular point in terms of offensive scheme. Like, to me, I think that is a benefit. But there's certainly the drawback is that Lamar Jackson has not performed as a passer the way that, you know, he did a season ago. And I think a part of that is familiarity with that offense has made the edges a little bit smaller for them. You know, you don't see as many layups to the tight end in the middle of the field and so on and so forth. So I, I think my bet with the Ravens is is on uh, the fact that they use all four downs more often than not. And the fact that they are a unique um, preparation. I'll say the following, for Eric, they're certainly using my previous analogy. They're high enough mean and they're high variance. And so yeah. on any given Sunday, they can beat Kansas yeah. City. They can beat anybody. And you know what? They just have to do it three weeks in a row and then they beat everybody. Which is why they were a good they were a good bet to go under eleven and a half wins, which is their season win total. Because, you know, like you said, high high mean high variance. But in the in the in the playoffs, I don't really care if I lose in round one or I lose, you know, whenever. I just I just need the I just need to stack four games on top of each other, and they have that capability. Let me let me add another statistical. Uh, uh, consideration to mean and variance, and that is non-stationarity, our favorite one. I looked at the game grades for all the teams over time um, earlier today. So this is Massey Peabody game grades, and they're not perfect because we would weight the statistics a little differently if we had more games, but it's not a bad look at how a team has had their ups and downs or whether there's a trend, if we believe in trends. 
And Baltimore has four of its five best performances in the last four weeks. If, if you, if you want to use a heavy discount rate, if you believe discount that, that the early season stuff should be discounted, then the Ravens really start um, moving up your power ranking. So I'm curious how you think about non-stationary, whether this year might be an especially non-stationary year. And then there's always this question of what role should priors play uh, when we think about the playoffs? And, and, and again, is that any different this year? I clung a decent amount to priors this year. Um, we actually have the Ravens as the fifth. We have the Ravens as fifth in our power rankings behind Green Bay, Buffalo, New Orleans, and Kansas City. New Orleans, a team I know Massey Peabody's high on um, yeah, in many ways because of their prior, but also because they're one of the most uh, anti-fragile teams in football. You look at their defense and their offensive line and stuff. Yep. The I, To me, I regressed a lot of my numbers to the market more than I do than I do in a normal season, but I also I made the discount rate of of a little bit a little bit uh, less steep. So as the weeks as the weeks progressed, I actually I actually said okay, this I clung to the market early, but then I clung to our numbers as the season progressed a little bit more than I normally do. Okay, okay, that's interesting, as guys. A, what sort of a correction, like kind of a splitting the difference? Yeah, 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 right. Okay. Eric, we got to let you go. Delighted to have had you and delighted to do two segments with you today. A real pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Eric Eager. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Eric's VP of Research and Development at PFF. And uh, always, always fun to talk with him about football analytics. Guys, that has been another two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. Sports analytics, two hours of sports analytics, even via Zoom for the whole crew. Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. This is Kate Massey for Maddie D., boss man and Dion Simpkins associate boss man appreciate you guys listening come back and join us next week when it will be 2021 it will no longer be 2020 thank god we will be here doing sports analytics between now and then enjoy your sports <laughs>